Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at BC's just introduced short-term rental legislation. Does it go far enough? Housing Minister Ravi Kailan joins us. Plus, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim drops by to discuss the new Airbnb legislation and his aspirations for Vancouver being a world-class city and to take your calls. And columnist Terry Glavin drops by to discuss whether Canada is a safe haven for Hamas. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's revisit our top story. Um, the Minister of Housing uh, was bumped today because of uh, legislation that was introduced in uh, Victoria, which basically uh, states that um, that the city of Surrey, uh, well, basically the Police Act, sorry, under Solicitor General Mike Farmer introduced legislation that will force the city of Surrey to provide policing with a municipal police force. The Police Act also gives the province the authority to counsel the current RCMP contract it has with the city. So please give us a call uh, on the buzz line on this issue, 604-331-2899. We will revisit uh, the issue at uh, 4.30. Uh, one of the other things coming out of Victoria that uh, made news today, of course, is that the government has introduced new legislation to regulate the rapidly expanding short-term rental market uh, in an attempt to return homes to the local rental market. Now, we all know that you know, these short-term rental um, uh, companies uh, have proliferated in a significant way throughout North America and Europe. Uh, they include uh, companies like Airbnb, Expedia, and Flipkey. Data indicates that more than 16,000 entire homes are being listed as short-term rentals for the majority of the candled calendar year uh, here in British Columbia. Well, legislation introduced today will hopefully curb that. Uh, BC will legally only be, British Columbians will only legally be able to rent out a primary residence and one one more additional secondary suite as a short-term rental, uh, but the legislation does not provide a blanket ban on these rentals and smaller municipalities are not included. They also have increased the fines for these infractions, $3,000 per infraction per day uh, from $1,000. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Housing Minister Ravi Kenlo. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, how confident do you think this new legislation uh, will be in combating the core challenge of our housing uh, issue here in the Lower Mainland. Do you think this will be the legislation, or do you think there'll be more tweaks needed moving forward? Well, Jazz, I think this is a significant step in, in the direction that we want, obviously, to head to. We heard clearly from local governments that we needed better access to data, they needed better enforcement tools, and we need to find ways to get housing back in the housing market. And what we've done with this legislation is address all those three key priorities. Um, some have said that, look, why do we need Airbnb and other short-term rentals in Vancouver? Uh, that in the midst of a housing crisis, and I think your own numbers, uh, uh, for at least from McGill University, were 16,000 entire units uh, in this province are used for or have taken, been taken out of the housing market. I mean, why not go further like states like New York have and, and really make the rules even tougher uh, for, this to, for this type of business to work in Vancouver? Well, I mean, I share people's concerns, uh, Jazz. I was, uh, I talked to some, a couple actually that are living in an RV because they couldn't find an affordable place in their community 
to, to live. And we have here on the other side investors who have three, four, five plus homes that they're using just for short-term rentals to, to make a lot of money on. And so there's fundamentally something wrong with that system. Now, what we've done here uh, and is referred to by the folks who did the McGill study recently is the gold standard uh, in the country. We're the only jurisdiction in North America that's put a primary residence requirement in place. Uh, but we've also struck a balance because we know that these short-term rentals uh, play a role in our um, tourism-dependent communities, and in particular in some smaller communities. So what we've done here is try to find the balance between uh, both getting housing back in the market, which it desperately does, uh, but also uh, ensuring that uh, where it's needed for tourism that it's available. Now, it's important to note that what we've done with legislation is create a baseline. This is the floor. If communities want to go tougher, we've built in parameters for them to go tougher. And so, uh, you know, we think this is going to bring a lot of housing units back into the market for renters. And, and of course, that's what everybody wants. Uh, any sense, uh, any sort of modeling that shows how many more homes may enter the rental market after this? Well, there's a couple of uh, alarming stats. One, we saw a 20% increase from just last year on how many uh, uh, properties are on short-term rentals, which is alarming, uh, a very scary trend line. But on top of that, we just had recently a, a McGill study that showed that there was just shy of 17,000 full homes that were on short-term rentals in British Columbia. And our view is even half of those coming back onto the rental market is quite significant. Uh, if you look at uh, how many purpose-built rentals we built last year in British Columbia, we built 14,000 in British Columbia. That's a record-breaking year. Uh, and if we can get even 8,000 short-term rental units coming to uh, available for renters, that is huge. It's almost close to doubling what we're building uh, in our province. Hmm. If Vancouver didn't have a shortage of hotel space, do you think you could have brought in tougher legislation? Was there a was there a hesitancy well, Van- there because of a shortage of hotel space? Well, th- this is again very uh, a tough measure, Jazz. If you look at uh, what other jurisdictions across Canada have done across North America, sometimes people refer to New York. New York went a totally different route than what we're doing, but by going that way, they've also created a black market. What we've been able to do with what our legislation brings forward is we're saying there's it's okay in some places. Uh, and it's okay in some. So essentially, if you're an investor buying homes just to uh, make money off of short-term rentals, we're saying that that's, that's not on in, in majority of our province. And if you're looking to, uh, if you have a suite in your house and you're like, I don't want a renter, but once in a while somebody coming in, we're leaving that flexibility for the homeowner to have that. So we think we've struck a, a, a good balance, which will bring units back. But again, we think this is a new standard for across the country, and it, it's much needed. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in regards to resort municipalities, um, uh, go, uh, you know, communities, electoral areas around Gulf Islands, um, what's your sense of the uptake in, in wanting to um, uh, sort of, uh, right now they're exempt from the principal resident requirement. What's your sense that they would actually want to be involved in sort of the tougher legislation? Uh, I think we're going to have a, a, a pickup from communities that are under 10,000. Uh, communities that are resort communities, uh, Tofino, Whistler, uh, Fernie, etc. these communities uh, will have to have a discussion, and they're having these discussions, so it's not like it's a brand new thing, but they're having discussions now about what's the right balance of housing versus the housing they need for their workforce. They're all having the same challenge right now. 
uh, that other communities are. They, they need short-term rentals for tourism. That was why they were supportive of them in the beginning. But now there's no way for the workforce to live. And so what's the balance? Those communities are going to have to have discussions on what they want. If they want to opt in, they're more than welcome. It's a, a very seamless process for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Salt Spring Island and the regional districts, they've had a unique challenge. They didn't have the ability to put licensing in place. They had no data. They didn't know what was going on. Part of the legislation allows them to set up a licensing regime. And, of course, if Salt Spring Island wants to opt in, it's a simple uh, motion that they have to pass, and we would uh, welcome them to the the same requirements as everyone else. Hmm. Um, In regards to Airbnb and and many other short-term rental companies, you know, it's not like they came in yesterday. This has taken a time. It has built up. But why do you think it's been such a struggle for government to to, to deal with this, uh, not just the provincial government, but municipally as well? Why has it been such a struggle, and why do you think it's taken so long to bring in some of this legislation? Well, the, the local governments and governments overall are struggling around the world trying to figure out how to manage this uh, ever-growing uh, sector. Uh, you know, I talked to the se- senator from San Francisco about what they were doing. Uh, I talked to folks in Washington State. I've talked to my colleagues from Ontario to Quebec. Everyone is trying to figure out where, where to go. Uh, what we did was we went to UBCM, our partners, uh, early last year and said, here's money, consult all the local governments, identify what the challenges are and what you'd like us to do. That report came to us early this year, and we've actioned it into legislation. And again, we're taking a big step, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if other provinces uh, join us in the, in the coming months and years ahead. Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Anytime, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back to the show. Well, it was a year ago yesterday. Ken Sim and his ABC candidates swept into power in Vancouver. Mr. Sim's victory ended a 14-year run by Vancouver's uh, centre-left in our city, elected on the promise to hire more police officers and mental health nurses, make our streets safer, and have a civic government get back to the basics. He was elected on this pro- that those promises, and he was given a supermajority. One year later, many of those challenges still remain, though. Mayor Ken Sim uh, joins us on the show today. He has promised to join us once a month to take questions from us and our listeners, and he joins us now. Mayor Sim, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. Well, look, we've got a lot to talk about, but uh, the Airbnb legislation was introduced today. The minister was on the show about half an hour ago. Uh, your thoughts, and I'm not sure if you've seen the legislation or been able to read at least uh, some stories on it. Any thoughts at this stage in regards to the province stepping in in regards to bringing in Airbnb legislation? Yeah, you know, we saw it come across the wire just uh, very recently. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a positive first uh, or like a positive step. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we want to enforce, you know, uh, people that uh, aren't following the rules. We want to make it uh, harder for uh, them to, uh, you know, avoid the rules. And this is a step in the right direction. Do you think it could have been tougher or do you think it gives enough flexibility for folks like yourself at the municipal level to, uh, uh, you know, decide whether you need to move forward on certain things. Some things can be tougher, some things can be a bit easier. You know, does it give you the flexibility to, to deal with your localized challenges when it comes to short-term rentals? Well, it, def- it definitely helps, right, uh, with the new enforcement tools, you know, uh, with the, um, you know, the, the database that they're going to be creating so we can actually see what we're working with. These are all, you know, positive steps mm-hmm. in, you know, going after people who are not following the rules. And I, I do want to emphasize that, um, you know, and 
it, look, we, we have a lot of challenges with housing. There are a lot of people uh, who want to live here who can't afford to live here or they can't find places. And so this is just another uh, thing that helps us pr- to provide more housing uh, to those people that want to live here. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a variety of things that you're going to discuss and debate during an election campaign. I obviously couldn't list all of them, but you're a year into your mandate now. Some have said that, look, when you have a majority, especially a majority that Ken Sim and his councillors have, um, a majority is a terrible thing to waste. It is often said in politics, you go come in and do the big, bold things, sometimes controversial things because you have a majority. Some have said that this, that this present council in Vancouver hasn't done the big, bold things yet. What do you say to that argument? Uh, well, I think we've done a lot of bold things, and I also think that we are incredibly thoughtful. I think people assume that you're just going to come in here like a bull in a china shop and just uh, knock things over, and that, that actually wouldn't be productive. It may make people feel really good initially, but we take a longer-term view, and we want to do right by the city. What? And so... What's you the know, bold when, things? When you look at bold stuff, stopping the road tax, getting rid of the cup fee, getting rid of a fifth bike lane within 200 meters of Broadway, uh, mayor's budget task force, hiring 100 police officers, which we've hit, by the way, um, hiring um, you know mental health workers, body-worn cameras, bringing back the SLO program, revitalizing Chinatown, making investments in the Granville Entertainment District and Gastown, just to name a few. Um, and that's not even before we even talk about housing. So, you know, uh, a lot of the things that we're, we're we have a big motion uh, coming to council this week that talks about seven different things. In addition to, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, Councillor Kirby Young lobbying to have uh, bus rapid transit brought to Houston Sunrise. Uh, you know, the the work that we've done on childcare, uh, student housing, view cones, just to name a few. Um, some of these things, uh, you know, uh, have an immediate impact. Some things take a while. Mm-hmm. And laying, laying the foundation, you know, the, the stuff that we're going to be talking about in our, um, uh, in our motion this week, these are things that once we uh, work on them, you're not going to see an immediate impact right now. These are going to take time. Uh, it's going to take time to flesh out, but we're going to create an environment where we can build more housing uh, faster in the future. And if, if this was done and executed on uh, 10 years ago, we're probably not having as many uh, conversations around housing as we are now. 10 years from now, when you've left that mayor's chair uh, and you look back, I'm, I'm not sure view cones would be your number one things that you've accomplished. I'm, I understand the argument you're making. We, we've been focusing on that. We've done a few stories on the view cones. But when you look back, what is your one or, what are the one or two things you want to look back and say, I accomplished those things that are important for the city? Are the two or three things that are a priority for you? Beyond what you've just told me, but what are the one or two things that you really want to get done Moving well, there, there's years, four, yeah. um, four really clear ones. Um, one, uh, we talked about speeding up the permitting process. So if we can get permits faster um, for uh, our home builders, then we create an environment where we can build more homes. The second thing is revitalizing Chinatown. If we have a vibrant neighbourhood there in the future where we celebrate our history and the future of Chinatown, uh, that would be a winner. Uh, three, making sure that our businesses, uh, there's an incredible business environment here where businesses will not only survive but will thrive because mm-hmm. uh, that creates vibrant neighbourhoods and opportunities for kids um, and, and people to live and work here. But it also helps us on the affordability side. 
um, and then um, having a material impact on uh, you know the, the challenges uh, not only in the downtown east side but uh, in this case in the downtown east side when it comes to substance use disorder people experiencing homelessness uh, a lot of the mental health challenges that we have to make a significant impact on that those would be the four main ones but the fifth one is creating a place where we groom our future leaders and we build an infrastructure so this place gets even better after we leave office and not because they ripped up the playbook and went in the opposite direction it's because we put the things in place uh, and we groomed our future leaders and mm-hmm. so this place is better and it's not reliant on any one person or any one party and that that that's what success looks like for us for you okay uh, let's talk to touch on housing just for a second you had a big press conference last week in regards to your priorities uh, in regards to uh, the the particular announcement you talked about wanting to do what Burnaby to a certain degree has done which is greater density around uh, transit stations you've talked about the the village plan um, how long will that actually take to implement and start will we see you know some results from because those are big broad issues that you've brought up but uh, implementing them can take many many years beyond sometimes one or two mandates Uh, what is the timeline for something like that well our part of the city i think it can happen uh, i don't want to say fairly quickly because everyone has a different definition of fairly quickly but if we can get all the uh you know all the rules uh, and everything passed in the first term that would be great because once that happens, um, you know, uh, home builders uh, can build and they can continue to build. And so when you look at our uh, 26 villages strategy, what we're talking about here is actually pre-zoning um, those uh, areas for single family homes, townhomes, multiplexes, and three to six stories. And so instead of, you know, um, builders having to navigate a very cumbersome system and they, you know, it could take two years to 12 years to get a permit, Basically, there will be incredible clarity as to what they can build um, basically immediately and they can start to build. And then it's really up to them to make sure they, they have all their ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. But the city would not be uh, a bottleneck to that process. When it comes to SkyTrain, yeah, look, I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that we have, well, I, I've identified or we've identified four, but you can make an argument for way more than four stations that have uh, basically no density around them and it's just a wasted opportunity and if we want to get real about dealing with the housing crisis that we have mm-hmm. we have to be bolder and we have to think bigger and so i i don't you know i i use uh king edward and canby as an example on the northwest corner um of that street where the sky train station is we have what a seven-story apartment building there that's absolutely crazy like mm-hmm. we should, it should be a lot taller. We should have more housing on that site. It's right on transit. It's an opportunity uh, to have more people in the area, get people out of their cars because it's right on transit. It just works on so many levels. And the fact that there's only seven stories there, mm-hmm. it's a wasted opportunity. And I think of all the families that don't have an opportunity to live in Vancouver because, you know, that decision was made. And we're not going to make that mistake again on our major transit hubs and along uh, SkyTrain um, and our subways, it should be more dense. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Yesterday, uh, to a year yesterday, uh, was the anniversary. Mr. Sim uh, and his team uh, won the election with a super majority, ending a 14-year run by Vancouver's centre-left. Lots of stuff, obviously, on the plate uh, for council, as there always is, uh, when it comes to safer streets and, and uh, dealing with and wanting to hire more police officers, which the mayor says that they have done. Uh, and, of course, 
mental health nurses, which is uh, they're still working on, and many other issues around housing and uh, a variety of other challenges before City Hall. want to hear from you, 604-280-9898. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to uh, Mark in Vancouver. Hi, Mark. Oh, hi. Yes, um, mainly I called to thank and congratulate uh, Mayor Sim. Um, I really appreciated you running such a successful campaign last year and getting rid of the, so, the so-called center-left. I, I think it's a bit more left than center. I own a small business. Um, I look forward to the reduction in regulations and red tape. So I hope that is something you are looking at, not just for home builders, but also for opening a business. Mark, thank you for your call. So there you go, uh, uh, Mayor. They're not always negative calls. <laughs> there you go. You got, you got a good one there. So, I mean, that's yeah. partially, I mean, are you heading, are you, you and I have talked about this before, but reducing just sort of red tape at City Hall. I Sometimes I roll my eyes a little bit because there's always going to be some bureaucracy. That's how processes and systems and governments work. But is there some, I guess, bureaucracy you can cut back on at City Hall in your mind? Absolutely. And so, so I, I want to thank Mark, um, the caller, for um, the, those nice uh, words. And uh, I also want to put out there, uh, people look at the role of office and mayor. Uh, and, you know, none of this is possible without our incredible team, like my partners in council, but also our incredible team at the City of Vancouver. Um, they do all the hard work. Uh, so, yes, um, it's not just regulations on housing. It's regulations and bylaws and crazy stuff throughout our city. And our team has been working incredibly hard on the housing front. They've already identified a couple of hundred, um, you know, legacy sort of bylaws and guidelines and directions from previous councils that um, just don't make any sense. And they're going to be presenting that uh, to us uh, with recommendations to get rid of most of them, and we're just going to make sure that there aren't any unintended consequences. And we're going to be applying that to, uh, you know, all the different business processes as well, or, or um, you know, processes where businesses have to go through hoops. Um, because at the end of the day, um, you know, if, if we don't support our businesses, if we make it, it's already tough enough to run a business. The last thing they need is to get uh, uh, slowed down or stopped by City Hall. We should actually be out there saying, how can we help you? Uh, get up and running faster. And when, when can we expect that legislation or, or just that information coming out in regards to the specific red tape you wish to get rid of? When, when can we expect that? It's going to be ongoing, but I think the housing stuff comes, uh, all um, uh, become uh, public over the next uh, month or two. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's go to uh, Dave in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say I'm really happy that um, Mayor Sam got in. I had everybody I knew voting and uh, getting out to make sure he got in because, you know, the, the previous councils, the, the direction that they were going, it's just there's stupidity. And, you know, Jazz has a couple of um, lead-ins to some of his shows where he talks about politi- politicians needing to stay in their lane and focus on what's important. And I, that's why I love listening to Jazz because it, it <laughs> just makes sense that, you know, you, you can't be doing trying to save the world when you're just a mayor for the city of Vancouver, right? Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, um, we live by a, a SkyTrain station. We have a single-family home, and we bought it from a, a, a gentleman that built it, and, he, and he's got two suites in it. And we, um, so we, we had a basement that was partially a concrete, you know, crawl space. We went to the city, and they allowed us to dig it out so we have a family room for our kids. But the inspector has um, since come back and said, okay, he walked through one of the suites, and it's got a stove and a, and a kitchen in it, and he basically says, We've got to take out the stove, and we've got, we have too much cabinets. It's supposed to be a bar, not a kitchen. And so we've got to remove all this stuff. Well, there's two people that live there. 
So, I mean, if we're trying to add density, you know, it just, to me, it's, it's more stupidity. Why, why can't I have two suites? Like, who do I need to talk to to get some sense? Like, what, if, I, if I get rid of this stove and, and cabinets, these guys aren't going to be able to cook. They're going to have to go find another place to live. Does Dave, that make sense? Dave, thank you for your call. Uh, Mira, uh, can you attempt to answer that one without getting too specific? Getting too specific? Yeah, you know, that's beyond my pay grade. But what I can tell you is, yeah, we, we definitely have an affordability and an attainability uh, challenge uh, in the city of Vancouver when it comes to housing. And, and if the uh, caller wants to, um, you know, leave us with their details, I can have someone here at the city look into it and figure out, you know, what's going on as a second set of eyes. Um, and we could, you know, either relook it and go, yeah, that didn't make sense, or... Uh, we can give the reason why you know, we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Dave, uh, stay on the line. Stephen will get your contact information. We'll pass it along to the mayor's office. Uh, mayor Sim, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for your time today. Look forward to having you on uh, very soon, I guess next month. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I still go by the name Ken. So I, uh... <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I just feel weird calling you Ken. I prefer Mayor Simmons. <laughs> just, all, it... all right. Well, I, I won't bring it up anymore, but I, I'm not. Uh, while I take the office of mayor very seriously, um, you know what? I, I still go by the name Ken. Well, not even 24 hours had passed since terrorists launched an unprecedented attack on Israel. Uh, and there were already people out protesting and some were justifying um, what Hamas did. Uh, does Hamas have support here in Canada, significant support? Uh, and are we providing that support in this country in regards to looking the other way? Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is Terry Glavin. He's a columnist for the National Post. Uh, and he had a, a really interesting uh, column uh, late last week uh, called Hamas Supporters Enjoy Safe Haven and Left-Wing Backing in Canada. I always enjoy his work and I'm glad to have him on the show. Show. Terry, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. First and foremost, um, in your opinion, uh, how widespread is Hamas support in your mind uh, in regards to, uh, you know, amongst left-wing, far-left-wing folks, uh, perhaps some academics? How deep do you think that support is? Um, that's a good question. I don't know how deep it is. It's very wide. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's actually less support for Hamas uh, in the Arab community uh, in Canada than it, than there is uh, in the academic community, in the social sciences and humanities faculties. Mm-hmm. Also, in uh, a lot of activist activist organizations and institutions, uh, this uh, really you know gruesome, blood curdling glee and excitement and celebration that we've seen, uh, you know, in response to the atrocities in southern Israel, the most bloodiest, the bloodiest day in Jewish history since the Holocaust, this pogrom. Uh, I think it's really shocked a lot of people, and it's really like, my God, are you kidding? What do you mean, by all means necessary? Mm-hmm. You know, sl- burning children alive? <laughs> eviscerating people in their homes. I mean, this, this it's just unspeakable. And I, and I don't think we really need to, you know, get into the awful stuff. Um, how, did we, how, how did we get here in your mind in regards to that, uh, perhaps not deep support, but certainly very wide support in your mind in this country? 
It goes back. It goes back a long way. I, I've spent a lot of time actually chronicling this, um, and uh, the research is kind of paying off right now because uh, what what I think people need to understand is that what what they're seeing. And, and I mean, I think most Canadians find this absolutely revolting. They're just re- responding. It's just, it's just horrible mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, in my case is that it's always been there. It's been there for a long time. There's a very significant trajectory in the kind of a global left-wing Islamist alliance. Uh, goes back to a founding conference in Cairo in 2002 and a series of subsequent conferences that committed... Uh, any uh, wide range of anti-globalization, you know, they, they called themselves anti-war organizations in Canada, made very explicit commitments to Hezbollah, to P- Palestinian Islamic Jihad, to the uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, mm-hmm. and so on. And I mean, in, in 2002, or was it 2003, Uh, almost every major uh, kind of left-wing organization that has any sort of interest in these issues was uh, arguing against the terrorist listing uh, that the federal government was contemplating for Hamas and for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Uh, As recently as last year, um, the, uh, the the same coalition of groups and about 75 different individuals across Canada were arguing against the terror listing for Samadun, which is uh, the PFLP's main sort of overseas fundraising and recruitment arm. It's based in Vancouver, by the way. Last Friday, it was banned in Germany by uh, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And you get this organization that's based in Vancouver. And two years ago, when it was uh, outlawed specifically in its own right in Israel, uh, not just because of its associations with the PFLP, but in its own right, it was listed as a terrorist organization. Three days later, uh, Ottawa granted Samadun um, federal protection under the uh, Nonprofit Corporations Act. So, you know, I think people should have a little bit of sympathy, you know, I mean, Jews are feeling a little bit nervous in Canada right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, that, you know, people need to understand why. And, and I think we have to be very specific about where this is coming from. Rather than just dismiss all these left-wingers, all woke politics and all this kind of stuff. I think we actually have to be very precise about who we're talking about here and what we're dealing with here. Is, and it is blood-curdling. It, it is absolutely blood-curdling. But is that part of the challenges of a democracy where you do have the right freedom of expression? Right. And some of the, those, though that freedom is quite offensive to some, to many, to most. Uh, and it just doesn't have to be Hamas or the Middle East. It could be South Asian politics. Uh, it could be, you know, <laughs> the, the trucker convoy to a certain degree. There was a small element there uh, that talked about separatism and they were talking about guns out of Coots, Alberta and all those types of things. Is yeah. this sort of the price of a democracy to a certain degree or do you think it – I that, think so. I, I think – and I, I'm, I'm of two minds of this. I've really struggled with this over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I – I, I'm quite closely associated, well, for instance, I'm a senior fellow with the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and Erwin Kotler, who's my lodestar. And the, the Raoul Wallenberg Center is quite, quite determined uh, and has supported the federal government's um, uh, sort of curbs on free speech, you might say. 
when it comes to uh, explicit, you know, anti-Semitic outbursts and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure that I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. It's, it is one of the things I'll say that's very peculiar is that both, both Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, and our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, have used almost exactly the same words, that glorification of terrorism has no place in Canada. Well, paradoxically, Canada is one of the only countries in the world where it's legal. Yeah. <laughs> it's legal to glorify terrorism. You can go around, you know, with posters saying, "Yay, Hamas! Hamas is great." You know, we're happy to we're happy to see you know twelve hundred innocent civilians in southern Israel slaughtered in their beds. Uh, um, you can do that in Canada, and I don't. You know, I think maybe it, it might not be a bad idea to know who these people are to have them out of the closet so mm-hmm. that we can see them, we can name them, mm-hmm. and we can, you know, uh, deal with them. Yeah. Terry, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay, Jazz, good talking to you. Uh, we're joined now by Jerry Mary Judson. That is the longest-running soap opera in the history oh, of BC politics. Oh, my God. Right Young now. and Restless. Watch out. This is oh, it's, it's quite something. I, 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 we've covered this this issue since day one when we launched this show, mm-hmm. and even even I'm just sort of shaking my head going, when does it end? There has to be an end. Stories all have an end, right? There's a once upon a time. I mean, what will we talk about yeah, if when I the Surrey Police thing does come to an end, when it's just, I guess, SPS and nothing happens? No, <laughs> no. no. We got... <laughs> Well, maybe we can talk about scuba diving. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> scuba diving. Now, when you talk about scuba diving, is these great images on television of, uh, you know, all over the world, different places you can go to. Yeah, the exotic, you know, with the fish. The fish, the whole bit. But you uh, uh, talked to an individual today <laughs> who perhaps isn't looking for those really pretty things. No, he's been there. He's done that. He's seen those pretty things. And now he wants to kind of make a difference in the world. So I talked mm. to Henry Wang. He is a volunteer at Divers for Cleaner Lakes and Oceans. And he's an accomplished scuba diver. He's been diving since 2004. And uh, he's got a kind of certifications thing like that and uh, we it's been in the news um, around the North Shore that he pulled up uh, I don't even want to spoil it a very interesting thing when he was cleaning up in deep coves so I had to talk to him about it and he was on a dive immediately before we spoke actually at Albert Dick Lake in Abbotsford so I had to ask him what he found down there I mean obviously I'm hoping to not see trash but lots of beer cans beer bottles and a boat paddle Tire. There's a lot more tires in there, but I just got the one out. Yeah, about 67 pounds of trash today. 67 pounds of trash, and that's just this is just on a just on a Monday afternoon. Like that's crazy. But you know what? In all fairness, sometimes people ask me what my estimation of the malicious uh, trash versus accidental, and I said, you know, to be honest, I don't really know. It's not like people are intentionally throwing away their $300 Ray-Bans or $2,000 iPhones, right? I, obviously, we have to talk about this 10th annual Deep Cove Dive cleanup situation. You found something, I don't know, unexpected, perhaps? So Deep Cove Government Dock is my favorite place to dive simply because of the trash that we find there every single year. just fascinates me. It's a working dock that's open 24 hours. There is no security, and it's not closed. So in the summertime, the kids like to go down there and just huck random things into the ocean. So the very first year back in uh, 2013, when we did a cleanup dive there, I found a parking bollard. And parking bollards are heavy. They're like 50, 70 pounds, whatever the weight is. (laughs) And so the kids would have had to pick it up from way up the hill, walk it all the way down the park, 
over the dock, down to the end, and then huck it in. following year, we found an aluminum park bench. They would have to unbolt it from the park that it was at, carry this thing, huck that in the ocean. And then the year after that, I believe it was uh, stolen motorcycle frames. So that got turned over to the police. So then, of course, this year... I was so I was so excited to get in the water because okay, what am I going to find this year? And as it turned out, my, the first thing that I saw was a lime bike by uh, the North Vancouver jurisdiction. That was the first thing I ran into was a lime bike, and those <laughs> things are obviously expensive and should not be at the bottom of the ocean. So I was glad to get that out. Oh, truly, what goes into so say you find a parking bollard, or say you find this park bench, or yeah, the ride-sharing lime bicycle. What goes into getting that out of the water? I assume there's a degree of complicated problem solving. Sometimes in this particular case with the line bike, it was really easy because number one, it was, it was shallow enough. It was only in 25 feet of water. And also I had a lot of uh, surface support around me. So I had a, a couple of options. I could have either um, used a rope that's brought down from the surface. I, I'll just clip the rope to the e-bike and then the surface support can just haul it up. But in this case here, I simply just used my lift bag, which is basically a giant balloon that I fill with air. I attached the lift bag to the e-bike and then filled the, this lift bag or balloon with the air that I'm using. And then obviously air being lighter than water, it will just lift this item to the surface. And then from there on, the surface board just took over and just hauled it out of the water. Has there been things that you've seen at the bottom of the lake that like you, like they might be what, too large? Like, have you seen a car down there or something like that? I haven't seen my seen a car, but very recently, um, teammates have found a car in uh, Cultus Lake and we're in the middle of uh, just relaying that information. It's a really old, like we're probably been there for 50 or 70 years. So we're in the middle of relaying that information to BC Parks. Biggest thing that I've ever seen is probably decommissioned fish pens that were scuttled from many, many years ago. So if someone, whether they scuba dive or not, if they want to get involved with your organization, how might they do that? I do caution that people, um, sometimes people kind of ask, hey, can I come and help? And I say, listen, you know what, this this scuba diving thing, it is a unique skill. Um, If people want to contribute, Feel free to go for a walk around your neighborhood, maybe when you're taking your kids out for a walk or your dog after dinner. If you see a coffee cup laying on the ground, just um, contribute in your own way by picking up the trash around you. And because whatever you pick up uh, will usually not end up in the water column where it's much, much harder to get it out. So for the people who want to help, uh, feel free to just go and do your own thing around your own neighborhood or maybe at the local park. And uh, if you're curious about um, the, some of the, thing, the things that I see underwater, you can check out my work at uh, any social media at Cleaner Lakes. He should probably hold a garage sale. <laughs> oh, that'd be so... Or just sell it on eBay. Be like, this is a lot... Well, no, don't sell the line bike on eBay. Give it back to yeah. who it belongs to. But he contacts all the proper authorities and stuff yeah. when he uncovers something really bizarre. But yeah, very cool stuff. It pretty much is. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Now, you may recall a massive earthquake that hit uh, Turkey earlier this year. The quake affected 14 million people, killing more than 50,000 and injuring more than 100,000 people. There were 2,500 aftershocks. Recently, a group of BC researchers uh, from UBC, BCIT, and several other institutes and private firms across Canada traveled to Turkey to get an understanding of how they responded uh, to the earthquake and whether, whether there would be lessons to learn for British Columbia. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Tony Young. He's a professor of civil engineering at UBC. Tony, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm here today. Thank you. Uh, 
First question, uh, what was the probably the biggest lesson you learned uh, in Turkey? This particular earthquake in Turkey is a very devastating earthquake event. And we have learned quite a lot of things from this particular trip. We have seen our Turkish colleagues uh, well prepared uh, towards this earthquake, where in the event of this disaster, they were able to respond quickly and be able to get shelter ready and started having uh, plans to have people displaces and provide food, meals, and shelter for them. Mm-hmm. Also on this trip, we are seeing our colleagues in Turkey. Um, they are seeing earthquake very frequently. So um, every 10 to 15 years, they see one major earthquake. So they know what to do. And also their building code are very stringent in the way of the performance they are required. Mm-hmm. Just for example, um, they have placing very stringent requirement for the hospital to be fully functional right after an earthquake. In that regards, they change their building code and ensuring that all the hospitals in high seismic zone were required to be equipped with technologies such as base isolation. In that regards that they will protect the occupants equipments and remain, make sure the hospital will remain functional right after an earthquake. Uh, are our biz, uh, uh, building codes as stringent as Turkey's? Uh, we have very robust building code in Canada, uh, but our building code are there to provide the performance of the building and ensuring the building do not collapse. Uh, we focus heavily into the life of the people who stay inside the building, but we don't have too stringent or explicit requirement for the functionality of the building right after an earthquake. So that will be something that um, our building code will start focusing on Mm -hmm. um, and ensuring that not just the safety, but also the functionality of the building. Um, the were you surprised by the how extensive the damage was uh, from that earthquake? I know it, there's been some time now, but I think that uh, there were about 2,500 aftershocks. I think it hit 11 urban centers, um, and I think it was 1,300 villages across the whole area. There, um, did you get a sense and scope of the uh, of the size of the earthquake? Yes, of course, I was on site, and this is clearly devastating to our colleagues in Turkey, and a big, put a very big impression to researchers like myself to see the vast amount of devastation to all 11 major city centers. So there are many city centers, villages, and towns. Over 14 million people are affected. Two and a half million buildings are affected. So um, it's a devastating and not something that we often see. You, you, my sense is that you're saying is they, they do a much better job or they're better prepared for dealing with the after effects and impacts of an earthquake than perhaps we may be just because they have more experience. That's correct. They are experiencing a big earthquake every 15 to 20 years. And over the course of the last century, they have seen many big magnitude like this one. So in their trainings, their schools are designed to remain as a shelter to host people who need help. So the, uh, the teachers who is in those middle school and high school are ready to be able to serve 
for refugees coming in immediately after an earthquake. So they have two earthquake drills every year. And then um, they, the government has ways to providing food, water, and shelters uh, to these shelter facilities. And I'm also very impressed about the speed they're trying to recover in terms of how to take away the debris and stop building replacement housings for the people who lose their houses. I read that in an article, basically, that, look, that it, it appears that if someone does lose a house, there is temporary housing almost immediately available. So even though the condition is not great, but they are able to leave. And to be really honest, uh, they really suffer. A, unfortunate the earthquake happened in the middle of the winter. So um, it's a really tough time. Uh, but uh, they were able to quickly get, of course, um, with support from other countries as well, but they were able to put these, um, what we call the modular containment housings around mm -hmm. and supporting for the people who need a place for shelter. And they also have uh, plans for food to deliver and water for the, uh, for the people who need support. So are we um, not prepared in your mind? I know you said we had a robust uh, uh, building code here. Uh, yep. But are, are we not prepared in your mind? This is a tough question. I mean, I'm not a governor, but I'm just saying that the building code is focusing on the performance of the building during the earthquake, not the after earthquake. But the, the part that I'm talking about is that we needed, in addition to the building code, to ensure the rest of the services are, will be ready to ensure that um, shelter can be provided mm -hmm. and um, resources can be moved around, making sure our electricity, water and running rescue can continue going and having the people to train in the event of the earthquake where to go to. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure about yourself, but uh, most people, if, if an earthquake happened in the next minute or two, they have no idea where to go mm -hmm. and they have no idea what to prepare for it. While Turkish colleagues, they knew which direction to head to and what responsibility they need to take on. So that's why I felt that they are more prepared already for this kind of um, readiness for, for that. It seems there's a, a culture uh, based around preparing for an earthquake or having dealt with earthquakes. Uh, I know when yeah. I was in Japan, I sort of felt the same way. Uh, it was right. just in around um, tsunami and, of course, the Fukushima okay. issue, and there were some aftershocks that hit as well. And I was just That's impressed right. at how prepared they are. You I mean, you can't always uh, protect yourself, but they were so prepared as a culture and as a government, and they have systems and processes in place. And it appears that's maybe right. that's where our greatest weaknesses are at the moment. That's correct. Because um, fortunately, uh, unfortunately, Vancouver was not hit by an earthquake uh, or major earthquake. So most people are not aware of it. So, however, Vancouver is one of the high seismic zones. Geological data have shown that in our region, we are one of the most seismic regions in the world as well. Mm -hmm. So even though it doesn't happen within the last 100 years where we started heavily populating the region, it doesn't mean that we can forget about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and will you be providing this information, what you've gleaned uh, as a group, uh, to government or uh, in regards to perhaps helping them with their knowledge and better preparing for when we are hit with an earthquake? Yes, of course. I mean, I am one of the 
committee member who is involved with the building code. We write the National Building Code of Canada for the seismic design. So we will ensure, and there are a few things we are already putting into the code and trying to kick into actions. We want to make sure the building code uh, can allow structures to remain higher performance. So we started modifying our codes already. In terms of the preparedness and in terms of that, we are very happy to interact with our federal, uh, provincial or city government to start to interact with them to have plans to ensure if a major earthquake comes, we'll be able to handle it. Well, well, it was quite the uh, quite the visit, uh, and I'm glad you were able to uh, glean some great information. And hopefully, it will help us better prepare moving forward uh, uh, in regards to uh, Vancouver and all of British Columbia uh, preparing for an earthquake as well. Thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome. Thank you. Take care. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.